0: Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Now available on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Hey guys, Jay Cutler. started a new podcast called Uncut with Jay Cutler. Most of you know me from the NFL, some of you have seen me on Instagram, and some of you know me from the reality TV world. Each week I'm taking you along with me as we discuss football, trending topics, and whatever's going on in my life each week. I'm bringing along people that are special in my life. Former teammates, friends, and some new people that I like and respect. That's what you're supposed to do, right? Podcasting? I think I'm doing this right. Can't wait to get started with you. Go subscribe now. Uncut with Jay Cutler, Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, and Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast.
1: Welcome to Real GM Radio. I am Daniel Rue, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. My guest is Jared Dubin of 538 and other outlets, and Really enjoyed the conversation. We talked about what to take away from this weird stretch of the season with so many players in the protocols and so much going on, but also some of our biggest stories in the league. Teams were still trying to figure out the most exciting young teams. I thought that was a particularly interesting conversation and a lot more. Conversation runs a little bit short of an hour. I hope you enjoy it. Thanks so much for coming on.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: I wanted to run an idea by you. You and I talk talk a lot and I've been having issues with how to process, how to evaluate the league right now because there are so many significant players out and I was watching Magic Hawks on Wednesday, and came to this realization that, in my mind, I'm kind of treating this like Summer League, where part of it is you know entertainment, and you get to see people and things that you haven't seen in a while, maybe in some cases you haven't thought about in a while, or never seen before. But that the threshold for me, like, my style of evaluation is more who pops and who doesn't. So, okay, this guy, oh, his jumper looks good, he has a good handle and all that, and because the... It's not only the quality of player, but it's also the understanding of the system and all that stuff like these players you know you can't treat us like they've had a training camp so i kind of think summer league is the right analogy does that seem reasonable to you or does that seem outlandish
0: no i think that makes sense it's really tough obviously to evaluate what teams are when the teams aren't playing like if you watch a Cavs game without evan mobley or jared allen right What does that really tell you about the Cavs, you know? So for me, I'm trying to find, like, the one game each night where both teams have a reasonably full rotation. So we're talking on Thursday. On Wednesday, I watched Denver OKC because that was the only game among the early games where both teams had most of their rotation playing. And then I watched um, some of... Clippers Kings after that. I mean, there's some guys out there too, obviously like Darren Fox, um, and then Marcus Morris and like a bunch of other guys, but it's, it's really tough to find what to watch on any given night because like, what am I doing watching? For example, like what would be the point of me watching Hawk Sixers tonight without Trey Young or Clint Capella, you know, or like Mavs Bucks without Luca or Giannis or even like Piston Heat without Cade, Jimmy Butler, Bam. And like, you know, it's, um, I-, I might be watching Denver again just because they're playing Charlotte and Charlotte's getting their guys back.
1: Right. So I think the part of it that I've embraced, and it took me until the last couple days to really get there, is the opportunity to see some guys that probably aren't ready for primetime yet. Like, Mm -hmm. So for example, yesterday for the Hawks, Jalen Johnson played a little bit, and I really liked him in summer league. And so I was excited. You know, It's in an NBA uniform. And part of it for me is there are some of those players where watching G League games would actually probably be a better tool for evaluation. But I know myself, and that's hard for me to have the bandwidth for in-season. You know, if I need to watch specific film on a guy, I've, I've done that before. So for that game, Jalen Johnson, Okongwu's only been back for a few games, so I wanted to see a little bit of him. And then it w- and then for the for the Magic, Chumo Kiki missed a bunch of time at the beginning of the season, so I wanted to get a little sense of him. And then it ended up being a game that Robin Lopez had double-digit assists, which was kind of transfixing. But you're right if the goal is to evaluate them as NBA teams and NBA players, then you want to try to focus on the most available healthiest teams.
0: Yeah, and like I try to I try not to flip around during games night to night. Like I tr- I want to watch games start to finish. So for that reason I find it especially difficult to focus on these games where there's guys that I'm just not necessarily that I'm not going to need to know them, but just they're not going to factor in to what the actual team that I'm watching is and it like i find that it might like throw my evaluation of that team off if i'm watching them in not their real form if that makes sense you know if there's one guy out that's not as big a deal unless it's like the best player on the team then maybe you don't necessarily want to watch that but i try to get you know as good a handle as i can on what the teams actually look like so i do find myself searching for even if it's bad teams are involved like i would rather watch you know, an OKC game with their full team than like half of the Lakers, if that makes sense.
1: It it does make sense. And I've been yeah trying to do a a mix uh, recently, a mix of the two. And some of it is also just with the nature of what Nate and I do. We're trying to get a, a little bit of a handle on every team. And there are some teams where it's difficult, if not impossible, to do so right now and then kind of go big picture or do something else. But it I mean, I'm hopeful that this will be kind of like this weird blip and somebody, I I can't remember who it was, it might have been you, was talking about yesterday that we're going to like, let's say 10, 15 years from now, like we'll be looking at basketball reference and be like, wait, this guy started five games in 2021, 22. What was that? And be like, oh yeah, like... The curiosity phase will be a long time from now, and the, like, memory and I don't even think it'll be a version of nostalgia, but I'm I'm ready for that phase, even though it's not here yet.
0: That wasn't me. I Now I'm wondering who that was. Um that, that is kind of funny to look back, like, we're going to look back on Joe Johnson and be like, oh yeah, he played for the Celtics in that one season, like three years after he retired. Um, and we got, you know, I would imagine a whole bunch more guys coming back. You know, hopefully, um based on, like, obviously I'm not an epidemiologist, so don't necessarily listen to me. But I've been, <laughs> been reading some stuff about Omicron, and it seems like the South Africa wave, which was sort of where it started, is kind of dying down a little bit now, which we're like two, three weeks behind that. So hopefully sometime in the middle to end of January, things start dying down and you can start, you know, stop having teams with eight, ten guys in the protocols, which would be nice.
1: For sure. Let's we could transition to a little bit of a thought experiment. You and you know, you and I talk a fair amount on, on these things. Let's say we're treating this we're treating this stretch where these teams are significantly shorthanded as 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 a blip or we're just pretending for right now that it doesn't exist. What do you think absent that would be your biggest storylines individual players or teams going on right now?
0: Um The Cavs, which I just did, I talked to the guys from the Chase Down podcast on uh, the Halftime app the other day. I just love watching them, which for me is a really big change. Even during the era when LeBron was there, I didn't particularly enjoy watching that team. This is like my favorite version of them in a really long time. Um, the Bulls still being, I think, 19 and 10 now, where they've had a whole bunch of guys in the protocols for a while. Um, the Grizzlies succeeding without John Morant getting really a lot better on defense and holding up offensively with him out. Um, trying to think if there's anything else. Um, whatever is happening with the Pacers where they like can't win close games, um, the Mavs kind of being like a very strange team. I know you and Matt talked about them uh, on your podcast. I think it was last week. I can't remember. It was, but yeah. yeah, it's a very strange team. Um, and then the Celtics in sort of the same boat where I can't really get a handle on them either.
1: The Celtics are really hard to get a handle on. And I think for me, a part of it is I do not want to have, you know, I don't, I don't want to get deep into the MVP conversation right now. But the other one is figuring out what's going on with Jokic's defense because mm-hmm. there is this just absolutely gargantuan disparity. And, you know, the on off that's part of Jokic, especially because he grabs so many rebounds, has been very popular in a lot of the all in ones for a long time anyway, even without this. But, Right now, the Nuggets have a 105 basically defensive rating when Yo- when Jokic is on the floor, and that balloons to almost a 120 when he's off. And certainly, for for some, that will be a significant part of the MVP argument for him. Is I mean, he's unambiguously one of the most valuable offensive players in the league. So then it becomes, how valuable is he on defense? And I mean, this is an old hallmark. You and I follow multiple sports, but like you get into this in other ones, which is how much do you evaluate the quality of their backups? And especially when a team is shorthanded, do you, do you give them more credit because they have, because I know some models do that they, the team falls off. But if that's because the players around them are significantly worse, then how fair
0: is that? Yeah, I mean, I think some of it with the defense is like you look at the bench units they're playing and it's like Campazo is playing who, you know, can get overwhelmed at the point of attack. And then it's the greens basically in the front court. And they're not particularly good at protecting the rim. They're good at other things defensively. But, you know, a lot of that nugget scheme, like Yoga's just being really big, helps them with their paint defense. And not having a player like that on the second unit, I think, really hurts them. So to me, it's it's not necessarily that it's expensive explained away, but I do think it makes sense that they're not quite as good defensively with him on the court, especially because you know they don't have Aaron, uh, Aaron Gordon out there as much like he plays a lot of his time with Jokic. They're not completely staggered. It would be one thing if, you know, they were a full stagger where it was, you know, one of them exits 6 minutes in and then he doesn't play the last six, but they they play a fair amount together. So, it makes a degree of sense with the replacement level thing i try not to take into account like the quality of a player's replacement or the quality of his teammates when i'm doing mvp stuff i just kind of look at like the way i view it in my head is you know which player made the greatest positive contribution to his team's ability to win during the regular season that's kind of how i look at it and that doesn't mean that's the right way to look at it, by the way. That's just what I try to do. So the Nuggets not necessarily having a great backup center or the Warriors not really having a backup point guard at all kind of doesn't really factor in for me because it's about what the player himself is doing as opposed to what happens when he's not in the game because he can't control that.
1: Right. I think at times that could be useful as a way of trying to figure out what a player is doing. You know, like okay, they have read, they run a lineup that's the same basic guys, but then they only you only swap out that player. Theoretically, were you to have a usable sample of that, be that would be. But there, of course, you have to suss out the context and a lot of other a lot a lot of other parts with that. And thinking about it, I, I pulled it up from the kind of like four factors perspective. It's not a surprise that the Nuggets are significantly better defensive rebounding when Jokic just on the four. They play They play bigger, not only with him, but generally at some of the other spots as well. And fouling, I mean, there isn't really, as you said, they can't really run the same scheme and they don't, you know, they're getting that. And then, for effective field goal percentage, one part of that is teams shoot way worse from three when Jokic is on the floor, and I, I'm not giving him credit, especially for that. But I'm not really giving anyone credit for that. And they're doing, a, you know, they're they're not doing that much worse or better protecting the rim when he's out there or not, which is actually in some ways kind of a concern when you think about, as you said, how small they're playing. So yeah. I'm having trouble with it. It's thankfully I I know that there are people who want the MVP argument to happen in earnest. Now I don't understand the point. I think it's fair, and you know, Nate and I do this all the time to discuss what it would be at this moment. But that is a different intellectual exercise. That's just okay. Well, who has provided the most value so far, and everything else? And yeah, let's get back to the Celtics and the Mavericks. I'll, I'll I'll leave it to be your choice of which one of those to talk about first. I think. A lot of us are still trying to figure out what in the world is going on both those places.
0: Yeah, I think I want to start with Boston. Um, It's just... I don't understand why so much of the focus is on, like, can Tatum and Brown play together? And why, when that is the discussion, people only talk about offense. Like... Having those two guys as your wing defenders, especially when you also have Marcus Smart, is really, really valuable. And that should factor more into the discussion. Oh, to me. for sure. And, like, more of an issue with those two guys. not Like, not all wings are playmakers for others. And certainly it's something that those guys should get better at. And I think they're doing, like, a little bit better job, at least, than they were earlier in the season. Although, obviously, Jalen missed a bunch of time. Like, it wouldn't be as much of an issue if you didn't have like Dennis Schroeder as your point guard or smart as your point guard, like the, the disconnect to me doesn't make that much sense. And then like, I think Al Horford has been really good for them, but I do think that bringing him in complicated things in terms of the way they should be playing like, Smaller Tatum at the four, like get more space out there, you know, like, and have, you know, Time Lord a bit more involved than he has been. Like, I don't know. I'm just, I have a lot of different thoughts and I'm not even sure if they all make sense in conjunction with each other. And it's like, they're not, none of them are even really complete thoughts. It's just like, eh, well, what about this? And then what about that? And like, why isn't Neesmith playing that much? Like, can Romeo Lankford hit any shots? What do I do (laughs) with this? grim? what yeah. do I do with it's like Grant Williams shooting a gazillion percent from three all of a sudden like I just don't know what to do with them on any level.
1: I think that your point about Brown and Tatum defensively is an incredibly important one, and something I've been grappling with, and some of it was the extreme. Nate and I did the game that they when they beat the bucks on uh, a week from Monday, and it was. Striking in that game, just you know, like the level of defensive capability that they have when everything's working, and you you think about that. But then the other part of it, if it's you know working towards a championship level, was Milwaukee because they're so familiar with the Celtics, even though both teams have changed their personnel at least a little bit over the years. They are exceedingly comfortable letting Marcus Smart shoot Mm -hmm. and getting the benefits on every on every one of those possessions of having their defenders close to the basket, being able to swarm guys for some of those extra passes. And what I was thinking about when you mentioned that was, especially if you're playing them with a capable center, and it looks like Boston can play capable defensive centers most of the time. They could theoretically move away from Ennis Freedom if they wanted to, if that was something they really wanted to prioritize, is that I actually think when you have that kind of a foundation defensively with with Tatum, Brown, and center, to be named later, you don't need Marcus Smart as much. He does raise your ceiling and he raises your floor. And it is true that game to game opponents aren't going to go as extreme as Milwaukee did. It's just that they basically have the scheme already, so why not just dust it? Up? Why, why not just dust it off and use it again? But the idea is basically it's not as extreme as you can. You have these two defenders, so you could just go offense only or anything like that. But I think you can tolerate players who are more limited offensively, who, as long as they can reliably, underline, bold, the word reliably, space the floor, ideally create a little bit, you know, like so, but they don't really have those other guys. They have a lot of players that could conceptually do part of that equation. Like, I didn't think, you know, in in Summer League, I thought that Neesmith's three looked pretty good. He made 37% on a small volume last year in his NBA minutes. So, like, maybe he could do some of that. Langford that would partially be the concept for Schroeder. And so I've been wondering if part of it is that those guys just haven't haven't had the years that we were hoping for. But another part of it is, like, so you're asking for less from those players, but you still have to actually get it.
0: Yeah, I I wonder how different the conversation about the team would be if they didn't have, like, five of their six top rotation players that actually shoot, shooting, like, well below expectation from three. Like, Tatum's shooting 33% from three on eight and a half attempts per game. He's been a mid-to-high 30s shooter for his whole career. Smart is down at 28%. Like, he's been in the 30s for a while now. Schroeder's at 33%, Horford's at 30%. Like, if these guys were shooting in the mid-30s instead, we're not having, you know, as much consternation about the Celtics. But, of course, they're not doing that right now. And I do think part of it is attributable to the way the roster is built. Like, there aren't many guys on the team that could get easy shots for somebody else. And, you know, a lot of the focus, obviously, is going to go to the best players when that's the case. And that's why I kind of want to spin it, because what they're doing on the other end is sort of propping them up right now. And to break that up, there's no guarantee that you make it up on offense, you might get worse on defense.
1: True. Yeah, that's that's a a good way of thinking about it. And you brought up all the players on the Celtics that are shooting below their standard and a couple of the guys that are shooting higher than it. They're useful and like I mean it's important that they're doing that in Josh Richardson and Grant Williams, but I don't think at least as of now that those guys being better than usual is it matters but i don't think that it like solves anything for the celtics it just makes them you know it helps in those specific circumstances
0: yeah it's not like they account for a ton of the team's three is taken you know right. like they've taken a combined like 153s Tatum has taken like more than 100 more than them like those guys shooting really well is not coming close to making up for you know Tatum and Smart leading the team and shooting a combined like 30 percent
1: also there's the question about the way you defend a team is built not only on what it's built on more complicated stuff than how the player is shooting at the moment and so how many threes does Grant Williams need to take for a team to be like okay he's a good shooter we're not going to leave him or we're going to close out Harder or something else, and it's more than the forty-five percent on
0: on ninety-five attempts
1: on ninety-five attempts that he's done so far. And sometimes, being that being a lagging indicator can can help because then you get more open shots and you're actually good. Or it can also help sometimes on the back end, where I don't know why I always think of Drew Gooden for this, but it's like he his best years as a shooter were not his last ones, and so he was treated as a better shooter later in his career than he was. Um, but <laughs> I don't think. Like, for Josh Richardson or for Grant Williams, at least at this point that they're there. So they're, yeah, you're getting a couple extra threes because those guys are making them. But, like, yeah, Richardson's 32 of 79. If he were 29 of 79, that would be 37%. That would be right and pretty much in line with his career average. So he's about, on on 83s, he's made... Three or four more than you would expect. That matters, but it's not ridiculous.
0: Yeah, I mean, look, it just—it matters just as much, if not more, that you get treated like a shooter than that you are a shooter. You know, you go back to a former Celtic, Rajon Rondo, where. He would shoot, you know, 45, 46% from mid-range, 37, 38% on threes, but didn't matter because he's getting 10 feet of space for a reason and it just clogs up everything else. doesn't matter if Grant Williams is shooting 45% from three, if he's taking one or two of them a game and nobody cares if he takes them and that allows you to completely wall off the paint or any sort of opportunities for the guys that actually have the ball and are trying to score a lot.
1: It also brings the question and challenge of how do you resolve this for boston and what does resolving it mean for the team's standard of success and that can go in a lot of different directions for Brad Stevens for the ownership group i am generally pretty reluctant to put teams in the championship contenders group i i, I haven't pulled, i haven't created the actual stat in a while now but the amount of teams that have won a championship without a player who has already won an mvp are vanishingly low and a couple of those are exceptions that prove the rule like the Kawhi championship teams the um the, the one with the raptors it's like okay he's one of the best regular season players he's just never won a regular season mvp and uh, there was one like years ago where like larry bird uh, there was a celtics team that counts but larry bird won it like the next year so um because i don't like using it as a uh, like using trail mvps because that could be biased by winning the championship and so then that gets into the question of can you to be a true champion chip contender the clearest path there is to having an MVP caliber player at at or near the peak of their powers and I at this point in time don't think Jalen Brown or Jason Tatum's getting there and they're both really good and they can they can be great parts of great teams but you have that and then the other way to do it is more like those Pistons teams where it's a really talented ensemble and the Celtics can get there but do you sell the farm to build that level and ensemble cast and what is the timing if you choose to do that?
0: Yeah, um so is the theory basically that they're like the the wing version of like I'm trying to think of who like a you know a teammate pairing um Damon CJ, yeah, Damon CJ, but 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 Conley better all around, but
1: like kind of better complement all around players, but worse, you know. Yeah, the, I
0: was what's... gonna say like Conley and Gasol, like during the the Grizzlies grit and grind era, like that quality, you know, guys that are all stars but not necessarily top ten players. Um...
1: Well, it doesn't even have to be uh, top ten is a fair line, but typically it's top five or so. Like that's and and I part of the challenge is that at. Points in their career, I think both Brown and Tatum have flashed that kind of destructive potential. You know, the Mm -hmm. like Tatum's best stretches, it's like, oh crap, if he can put this together, like maybe, maybe there is a top five player in there. And with Brown, talented physical tools, has an underrated handle, you know, and now he's, you know, he's he's shooting the ball really well from three so far this year. Overall, right now, Jalen Brown's at 58% true shooting. um, But that is with, I think he's at like 39, 40% from three overall.
0: Yeah but he's been shooting, you know, really well from 3 for a while now yeah. like it's it's not new you know yeah he's it been I, he's been 30, i think he's, he's been
1: 37 38 or higher each of the last couple of years
0: yeah so he's at 38 or better in 4 of the last 5 seasons wow you know 39.5 34.4 38.2 39.7 38.9 and on increasing volume you know so
1: yeah increasing volume and a decreasing proportion of them that are assisted which is sort of like what happened with Tatum a couple of years ago those are more difficult attempts and that to is what happens when you shoot more of them is you can't get as many you can't get that many easy ones. There's only a finite finite limit.
0: Yeah, I mean, this is why I'm so confused about this team. Like I I like so many of the individual parts and I just don't like the way that they're congealing together. And the desire to make it about the two best guys rather than the supplementary guys seems strange to me. Although I guess you know, I've criticized the Blazers for, you know, not going in a different um, structural direction and just tweaking around the margins for years now. Maybe we'll get to that point with the Celtics eventually. But these guys are still in their, you know, they're 25 and 23 years old. It's a lot different than Dame and CJ being, you know, in their 30s. So I, I think Right, they- and, the,
1: and the Celtics have a lot more... Young options. So, mm-hmm. if somebody like Langford or Williams or Neesmith could m- could establish themselves as even like a start, like a reliable starter level of player, and I think Robert Williams has already done that when he's available. But getting mm-hmm. another guy would make would make a world difference there. And I'm I'm interested in that. I, I think we can jump to the Mavs and. As you mentioned, Matt and I talked about this a fair amount last week. But I've been having trouble with them. Kind of, it, it's 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 so hard to kind of guard yourself against the oh they swapped to Jason Kidd, the offense is way worse. Surprise, surprise, like that that sort of thing. And because it's not entirely that, and you you look at some of the the ways of of estimating or calibrating what a team is doing and what they're not doing, and it's not it's not so different. That like with the way, for example, when he left the Bucks, and we're like, oh, there's so much hanging fruit. A lot of it is more playing guys that aren't necessarily threats and then players that are performing below their usual standards.
0: Yeah. I mean, one thing, too, they miss a ton of free throws. Like it's great. Luca's under 70 percent on free throws. Um, KP is shooting well on them, but he's like the only one that I was. Wa- I can't remember which game I was watching and they missed like 12 of them. And I was like, what is this? and then i looked at it they're i think like in the bottom 5 in free throw percentage
1: yeah they're bottom they're they're, they're they're 21st now but i think they're okay. but they're but it's but the from bottom from 25th to 21st is really really close like well within a percent
0: yeah, and like that's obviously pretty low hanging fruit. Some of it also, Luca's not getting to the line as much as he did last year. Like maybe he could come into camp and in shape one of these years. And they're another team that just has guys shooting like way below expectation. Reggie Bullock is shooting twenty seven percent from three this year. He shot forty percent with the Knicks last year. You know, Tim Hardaway shooting thirty three percent, Luca thirty three percent, KP twenty eight percent, Brunson thirty three percent. Like those guys are all shooting three percent better. Their offense is a lot better. You know. Um, some of it is that some of it is Jason Kidd because part of the reason they're not shooting well from the three is because they got like guys ducking into the paint while like, you know, it's a KP duck in at the same time that Dwight Powell is rolling to the rim. And just what does that accomplish for you? Or they've got three guys on one side of the court, all standing inside the three point line. Right. What does that do for you? Like it's a team where I can't figure out what they want to be other than Luca does this. And also we have to make sure KP gets his touches.
1: And I'm happy you brought up the point of, of kind of like the context of how shot locations are useful to understand certain parts of it. But it's also like, what are what are the choices in terms of personnel and scheme? You know, like what you're trying to do that make life harder or easier on those players. And like I, there you can think of all the things that Quinn Snyder does. I, the catching the ball on the move so you get a little bit of an advantage. And particularly when you have, well, I was going to say particularly when you have less athletic perimeter players but it helps a lot with athletic guys too i mean you can see what donovan mitchell does but that you know that creates some small advantages there's a theory behind it the players know what they're doing and and can execute it whereas with with the mavericks it as you said there isn't like a necessarily a theory of the case and it would look a lot better if some of those players were making threes at a reasonable rate but that wouldn't that, that wouldn't solve everything it would solve, solve a lot
0: no, I, I think also just having to have a center out there with KP rather than another ball handling option for most of the time, like if they were able to play Brunson with Luka more and KP at center more, like those, that the combination of those three things would just make their offense so much better. But instead they've got to play Powell and, um, why am I blanking on the backup center?
1: I mean, they've gone through a couple of different guys. Colley uh, like Stein,
0: like Colley Stein, Kleba, like they're playing those guys, you know, 42 minutes a night combined, like. If they didn't have to do as much of that, and I I kind of like Kleba, you know, and Powell is a pretty good rim roller. He's not much of a rebounder, like not neither is KP really, but, you know, Luka gets all their rebounds anyway. But if they were able to have more of a second side ball handling threat at times, I, I think I would be a lot more into them. But they kind of feel the need to protect... KP defensively and I think it makes much more sense with Kleba because he's more able to guard in the perimeter than than uh, than Powell is. Um and you don't want KP chasing guys in the perimeter because A, he's 7-3 and you want that guy near the basket and also because B even before his injuries he wasn't particularly good at going out onto the perimeter um, it, it's not like he does too much of it but I, I think that the balance would be better tip for them if they leaned into trying to get more offense out there but the whole thing was hey we need to fix our defense we're going to hire Jason Kidd and so I don't know that they're ever going to do that
1: One, I mean, so the overall stats on it and I, I think cleaning the glass for the Mavericks is pretty good about their positional depth definitions about when porzingis is the four and when he's the five some teams those lines get blurry and it's just hard to hard to quantify for some but if we do the porzingis at the four porzingis at the five mavericks have a 101 offensive rating when he plays power forward and a Mm -hmm. 111 when he plays center and one of the big parts of that is that they're able to get more shots at the rim they're not get they're still not getting many it's basically it's 25 and a half percent versus about 28 percent but those are typically very, very makeable shots. Those typically help a lot, and because you, because the idea, and I mean, what uh, to me, one of the more extreme examples that can be useful to prove this or to to uh, for people to understand are those like KD included warriors, where when you have shooting at a lot of positions, it opens up driving lanes, even though you don't necessarily have the greatest finishers, because the defenders can't be there.
0: Ah, <sighs> yeah, it's uh, I don't know, man, like just another team where it well, doesn't make much sense <laughs>
1: the, the another frustration with the mavericks is i i think rick carlisle is a i think he's a very good coach but one of the i guess you could call it a hallmark of his team's the recent vintage is that they've had they did they don't run and mm-hmm. so, so it's you know it not every team can depends on your personnel, depends on a lot of other things. And so last year was a frustration for me that while the Mavericks had the, they actually had the number four half court offense in the league last year, but they also played the highest proportion of their possessions in the half court. And every team is way more efficient in transition because it's easier to do that. And some of that is, you know, feedback loops, getting stops, mixed buckets. You can get more in transition if you get more stops, if you get more steals and everything else. But another part of that is, I would describe this as running when you get the chance. And like last year, the Mavericks were 29th in transition frequency off of live rebounds. And they, overall, they were they were dead last in transition frequency. Bring in Jason Kidd. You go, okay, Kidd can... At, at bare minimum, he's not Rick Carlisle, so you get another roll of those dice. And Kidd generally has been supportive. He was a wonderful transition player himself. Dallas has moved all the way up from 30th in transition frequency to 28th.
0: I wonder how much of it is just Luka. Like, I think it
1: might at, be a lot.
0: You look at the guys who are the best... You know, half court passers, in the or just the best passers. Period. LeBron's teams for his entire career have been slow. Chris Paul's teams for his entire career, until this year, funnily enough, have been slow. Jokic's team—they play faster, but you know, when he's on the court, they play slower. And uh, maybe it's the same thing for Luka. Like they would just rather operate in the half court because they have more control over it. You know, well, the, it also um,
1: could conceptually. This would be a very interesting thing for somebody who has more capacity to research this than me. It would make sense that heliocentric teams might have in some cases have more trouble running because there aren't as many players they can capably handle and pass. Mm-hmm. Now, that said, the Hawks run a lot more than the Mavs do and they're both they're another incredibly heliocentric team, but the Hawks have better they have better transition finishing personnel than the Mavericks do and so that can be a part of the equation. Also, Trey approaches transition very differently than Luka. So, yeah, I I looked it up. Each of the so each of the last three seasons, when Luca has been on the floor, the Mavericks transition frequency. Has been in the seventh percentile or lower when he's been out there. And they've run more, though often not that much more, when he is off the floor.
0: Well, I think that makes sense, too, because Brunson likes to run more. Yeah. Not that much, but certainly more than Luka. Yeah, and, and, uh, and, with, and I, I looked you... it up, by the way. The the defense on the uh, Luka Brunson KP with no center is not good. <laughs>
1: not a huge surprise. I mean, no,
0: 117.8 per 100 possessions. They've only played 129 non garbage time possessions at clean the glass, so not great. Uh but I don't know. I, uh, and,
1: and so I, I pulled it up, I did Trey versus Luca. So Trey this year, forty fourth percentile, about fifteen percent of their possessions are transition when he's on the floor. Mm-hmm. So that's actually below league average, but it's significantly higher than Luca. So that's what is it when
0: he's off the court? I would imagine they run less when he's off the court.
1: It's actually about the same. It's four so fourteen point nine versus I believe fourteen point seven. Interesting. Yeah.
0: I would have thought a big difference with him on the bench. That's, hmm.
1: and if you do it in terms of, and last year, that was in terms of like percentage of plays in the half court, that was, it was a more extreme difference. But I think part of that was because remember those crazy Clint Capella on off defensive stats that it was just they were getting more stops and it's so much easier to run when you're getting stops.
0: Yeah. I mean, they also had for half the season Rondo. Right. Who is not necessarily going to run a ton. Right. And that's, I think that's a part of
1: why the last year, the Trey off lineups ran a lot less off of live rebounds. So they Mm -hmm. did about, they were similar in terms of steals, but they ran a lot less off of live rebounds. And I'm guessing that was mostly Rondo.
0: (laughs) That makes sense.
1: Dallas, I would say, in in many ways, it to me is the thornier of the kind of like, well, how do you solve this situation? Part of it is that they have, and you could argue this with Tatum and Luka, is that their best players playing better and making in some ways it's not even at times it's not even playing better just making shots at the rate that they usually make shots would shift things a lot this was a part of the story for me with the Lakers in the first like 20 games of the season was just that their best players need to play better and then LeBron did and then Anthony Davis got hurt but for Dallas partially because of how they've used assets over the last few years and partially because they just don't have that many interesting young players I have trouble with how Dallas gets to championship contention other than Luka becoming even better than he was at his best, which is possible considering how good he was and how young he was. But building the rest of it out where it's like, okay, you don't really have financial flexibility. You don't have a ton in the way of, like, high-quality draft picks. It's just—it's a hard—it's a hard line to figure out.
0: Yeah, like— it's it's a surprisingly old team, you know. Like, even well, and, and Bronson, another way
1: of putting it is that it's a surpri- It's an extremely not young team. See, yeah, those aren't necessarily not. the same thing. But I think in this context, so like for example, the Mavericks don't have a ton of like true obvious post prime guys. Where it's like, okay, every year is definitely going to be worse than the last. But if the goal is to be better than you are right now, another standard is who do you expect to be better next year than they are right now? And Luca's only twenty two.
0: And- and it's even, basically just Luca and KP. Like you look at all, and of Brun, the Brunson's twenty five. But I don't know yeah, how Brunson's he, a free agent. After yeah, this that's season, true. And he's unrestricted because he had this straight four year deal, so somebody can steal him, and there's nothing they could do about it. But you know. Finney-Smith is 28, Hardaway is 29, Bullock's 30, Cleaver's 30, Powell's 30. Like, how many of those guys should we expect to be better next season? Like, their minutes-weighted age is 27 years old. That's the same as the Pacers, basically. You know, you you wouldn't think of the Pacers as a particularly young team either. It's a half year above the league average right now so
1: oh so, so do you have that pulled up right now
0: yeah are the there Celtics any particularly are young
1: are there any particularly young teams that are interesting for that reason of like they're good but they're also younger like the grizzlies are oh pretty yeah, young. the grizzlies
0: yeah that's who i was the, the grizzlies and the Cavs. i haven't run my um wade wins above age-derived expectation for this year yet but i would imagine the grizzlies they're on pace for let's see 19 divided by 32 is what 82 they're on pace for 49 wins with a minute's weighted age of 24.1 years old wow i would imagine they rate very very highly in there i can go into the database and see if there's a similar team right now well and a, um,
1: and a part of why those two teams are so exciting is because their younger players are a big part of why they're succeeding so I, I'm trying to remember you might have the memory of this I think I talked about this with Matt Moore too of there was a team a couple of years ago that like really defied expectations and they were really young but their young players weren't the reason they were succeeding. And so I was like, oh, OK, this is a little bit of fool's gold in terms of their long term future. I don't think it was last year's Knicks. I think it was a team a couple of years ago beyond that. Oh, and- you know what?
0: I had run Memphis at the start of the season. Where was it? Um, they were on pace for 12 wins above expectation. But this was pretty early on in the year. And now they're on pace for 48 wins. So they're on pace for like 17 17- wins above expectation which is comparable with let's see the 20 i gotta find a team in the same age range there's not really a good one there the closest team would be like the 2014 rockets but that's a 25.4 year old team. The 77 Blazers, 24.5 years old, 49 wins. Wow. How
1: about the Cavs? How do they look in that?
0: Um, the Cavs, they are 24.7 years old, also on pace for 49 wins. So same thing. That 77 Blazers team.
1: Jeez. But yeah, I mean Cleveland. I, in some ways, for me, Cleveland is even more striking because Rubio's helping, of course, to be, to be clear, but. Other than Rubio, and it's not only... So for the Cavs, It's the players that I would say, I would assess, have been their best players so far are not only among their youngest, but also among the players that we think need to be the centerpieces of their future. So be- Allen, Mobley, Garland, those are their three best players, and those are the three focal points of their future and sure ideally Colin Sexton would be in that mix too and Lowry Markkinen would you know it would be great if you could get him and a Coro into that mix but if you are well over 500 like the Cavs are they're 19 and 13 right now and I don't I, I believe the record is meaningfully better than that when they have their best players all available granted that's true of almost any team but that that part of it is so fundamentally different, and I'm not comparing them to that, but it's something that I remember about the early twenty ten- the early twenty tens o k c teams
0: yeah, that's the team that has uh other than uh the seventy three win warriors that's the team that ranks pretty consistently the best in weight like they're At 23.7 years old, they won 55 games, 26 above expectations, the third highest ever. Like that makes absolutely no sense. The next closest team with a minutes weighted age less than twenty-four is like are actually the two thousand nine Blazers one fifty-four. Um, and then it's the the twenty ten Sonics slash Thunder at fifty wins, twenty three point two years old. And then there's only one other team younger than twenty four that finished above five hundred. Wow. And this is going back to the merger.
1: That's really like, impressive.
0: Yeah. <laughs> So both the, I mean, they're not under 24, the Grizzlies and Cavs, but pretty far ahead of schedule based on what you'd expect from teams that age.
1: I, I think the way, the way I want to end this, and it's interesting to go there from the Cavs, is that for the last couple of years, I've been wondering, you know, we've had this group of unbelievable players at different stages in some ways of their careers. You could think of Curry and... Kevin Durant and LeBron James and James Harden and like this group that has been and Chris Paul that have been all NBA stalwarts that have been towards, you know, that have been in the best best of the league. And even though some of them, many of them have aged better than we would have anticipated, many of them because they're unbelievable shooters, some of them because they take amazing care of their body. They've kind of hung on a little bit longer and you know, doing top prospects and everything else, there is there is this opening in part because the like mid to late twenties group has been very disappointing overall. Like, yeah, Giannis is unbelievable and Jokic has taken the huge step into filling that void. But there is going to be this stretch, probably we're probably about three years away from it, where the players who are the best in the league are not the, not the players that we're all super familiar with right now. I mean, there are players that you and I know well, but it's not going to be like that. You know, Curry and Harden and Durant are, just aren't going to be among the five best players in the league anymore. LeBron's going to be 40. Like, odds are that he's not going to be there, even if he's a cyborg sent from the future to rule basketball. And something that I find so fascinating and important for the arc of the league is – there is still a lot of ambiguity about – it's not necessarily even like who is going to fill that. Like that's going to be fun and it's going to happen with time. But the part that I've been fixating on over the last couple of days is – who has the right capabilities? Like who has the right physical tools? Who has the right skill set? Because some of the guys that are working into that mix, like for example, like Trey and John Moran are both unbelievable and they're still really young. I think they're each 22. But generally speaking, the best player in the NBA has not been a small Finn guard. Like that's just mm-hmm. not, the, that's not the way it's worked. And so Luca is an easy one to do. Like if Cade can take real steps forward. And then, but so the question is, is there somebody who has kind of like the more quote unquote traditional tools who just figures it out? That seems pretty logical. Or somebody who has undeniable tools that does something different, like that's kind of the Giannis template. It's just like, okay, he's just unbelievable. Or is the field a little more open, and now maybe somebody like an Evan Mobley or an Anthony Edwards who does things a little differently can work their way in?
0: Yeah, I was going to throw LaMelo in the mix sure, too Because he's, you know, the, the otherworldly type of point guard, but he's also like 6'8". Yeah, well,
1: to me, LaMelo is kind of along the Harden template of like, he does he does things that a smaller guy does but since he's bigger there's a little bit more flexibility with it
0: right and like you look at like i love what trey and ja are doing too basically the only small guard who has been good deep into his 30s is chris paul you know or i guess how big was john stockton bigger than those guys um you know it's it's very unusual for guys that size to have super long primes. That doesn't mean they're not going to be great for a while longer. They're still in their very early 20s, you know. It just may not be 15 years. It may be 10 years, you know.
1: Right. That's a that's a really good point. And I'm really excited about where where the league is going and we're also at- we'll see where the equilibrium is in terms of calling perimeter fouls versus calling interior fouls and i think the league and refereeing are still going to have some stuff to figure out in that on those fronts but the the idea that there are Again, a lot of different ways to succeed because I think there was a moment in time. I know there was a moment in time when particularly when those high profile Warriors Rocket series were going on. And I think we we had a we had a stretch where it's like, oh, this is where the league is going. Is these mm-hmm. sorts of these sorts of things. And two things happened at the same time. One is we got an influx of exceedingly talented big men who mm-hmm. could have been switchbusters. Like if if that was the way we went. But the other thing that happened is I think there's stopped being as many teams that necessitated those sorts of hyper aggressive defensive strategies. There isn't another 2016-17 Golden State Warriors out there right now. There are some damn good offensive teams, but like the Suns and the Jazz and even the Brooklyn the Brooklyn Nets might be the one here, but I mean there're a whole bunch of reasons why their situation is complicated. But I'm I'm wondering it feels to me like What felt like an inevitability a couple of years ago is a whole lot less inevitable now.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think the big, the, the big man guy point is a good one, but I think the explanation might be as simple as nobody else has Draymond or PJ Tucker. Sure. You know, like the reason those lineups worked were in large part because of those guys, and they're the only two versions of those guys. Some teams are going even more extreme with it where they'll, you know, they'll use the, I call them the biggie smalls like Bruce Brown, Terrence Mann. Uh, those kind of guys. But that's typically they have a center on the court with those guys and just use them as the center in half court They use them as the only non shooter. Yeah. Right, um you know, and like the the Nets will run out a technically KD at center lineup with Brown as the nominal center in their half court situations, and that works for them. But you also need Kevin Durant to be able to do that, and nobody else has him. You know, so some of it is just the the ultra rare talents that make those groups work are not available to most teams, so they can't do them.
1: It's an extremely important idea to focus on, and I remember that in those Warriors runs, I said teams can. Go small, but part of what makes the Warriors special is that they have rim protection in those lineups, which most of them Mm -hmm. don't. You bring it, bring up PJ. And that's why it makes more sense to me to that last year's NBA champions, where PJ Tucker played power forward, makes some sense as a template too, where you have a significantly more mobile big. But Giannis is Giannis. The way he succeeds on defense is still primarily doing big man stuff. It's not like you're playing Kawhi Leonard and switching everything one to five. What Giannis does best is protecting around the basket without fouling. It's just that he is. A different mold of those same skills than somebody like Tim Duncan or like Hakeem...
0: Or Rudy so does, Gobert. Like, what?
1: Or Rudy Gobert. Yeah, absolutely. Gobert. Yeah. And and like, so...
0: There are not big guys that move like guards, but no. do big guy things. They don't exist for the most part. That's why everybody was calling them unicorns a few years ago. And especially if they can shoot. And Giannis is able to do what he does despite not really being a threat to shoot. You know? Like, it's pretty outrageous. And I mean, you throw, he can act as a lead ball handler a lot of the times. That, that was why when, when people were arguing a few years back, whenever it was about like which of these young guys do you think like it was you know towns Giannis porzingis like that group of guys when it was like oh these are the young unicorns coming in i was like give me the guy that can be a lead ball handler um you know it's just kind of worked out that way but that that, that wasn't necessarily um guaranteed to happen
1: well and, and the funniest part of it is Giannis is the best rim protector of that group yeah, yeah. porzingis is seven foot three carl anthony towns is a big guy carl anthony towns had Good defensive film when he was at Kentucky. And mm-hmm. he's, you know, he's been a part of a much more successful defense this year. And that's definitely a positive for him. I, I think the way that I want to end this is with kind of a, a, an interesting big picture thought for me. And one of the ways that I like to kind of suss out the top teams in the league is who is top 10 in both offense and defense? Because the idea is basically. It, it, of course, if a team could be elite on both ends of the floor, especially if they can do it against playoff level competition, then you have an almost definite champion. And you know the the Warriors and their best were in that in that camp, and there have been a few there have been a few others in time. But other than that, one kind of basic way is to be top ten in both offense and defense, and. There are currently five teams that are top 10 in both, and then there's a sixth team that, because of absences and because they're so close to the line, qualify there, which is an unusually large number. Utah Jazz... First in offense, fifth in defense. Warriors, fourth in offense, first in defense. Chicago Bulls, sixth in offense, tenth in defense. Bucks, seven and seven. Phoenix, eight and two in defense. And then the honorable mention that I think is kind of close there is Miami, because Miami's tenth, eleventh, and ninth. So it's like, you know, and they've had a lot of their best you know, Jimmy's been out for a while and everything else. That is a lot of like that's an unusually large number of high performing teams.
0: Man, the Bucks? With all the injuries and whatnot that they've had this year, being in there, that team is so good, man. Like they are. <laughs> it's wild.
1: Also, having two teams that are top five in both the you know the 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 Utah's average ratings their their average rating I think is third, and then the Warriors is second and a half because they have you know their five divided by two is kind of the way you would think about it. That's remarkable too. Now there's some shooting luck for both those teams and a few other. You know, this is this isn't necessarily their you know, we're not saying this is their true talent level, but to have that many teams that are in that level and some of that is also just as deep as the people have said that the east and the west are, some of that is talented teams not living quite up to their expectations.
0: Yeah, I'm curious what happens? Like, or did you say the Nets were in there?
1: They are not. So the the Nets okay, are the so Nets good. are currently twelfth in off- offense and sixth in defense.
0: Yeah, I mean their offense. Obviously, you would expect. To get better, but I'm curious to see how much better it can get. Um, Agreed. Because a lot of it just depends on like, what are we really going to get from Harden, you know, because he hasn't been himself this year for the most part he's been, or he was better recent weeks before he went on the COVID list. But it still hasn't been the same, you know? And I want to see if he... Like, what happens if he gets back to the level he was at last year? Do they just start beating teams by, like, 20 points?
1: They might. And Brooklyn's defense also isn't this good. They... I mean, I
0: wouldn't think so, no.
1: But... They have they have you know partially because they haven't been able to play their full offensive personnel. A lot of the other guys in this team are. Brooklyn doesn't have a ton of two way guys, but a lot of the one way guys they have are primarily defenders, and that makes sense when you have the gifted offensive forces that they have. You know you don't need as much creation when you have Durant, Harden, and at some point Kyrie Irving. So yeah, that's maybe. Maybe, potentially, you know, possibly. So yeah, that's that's really, it's really interesting. Also kind of of note, there are the teams that, like, so Charlotte has number two on one end and number 30 on the other end. And then I think there's a team that's sort of the equivalent. Yeah, the Clippers are fourth on defense and 24th on offense.
0: Fourth on defense and 24th on offense? Yeah. Oof, 24th. Are there more teams that are top five, bottom five? That's always like a a weird one. Like the Blazers, when they would be like third in offense and 28th in defense or whatever. Top five?
1: So, there aren't let me see top five bottom five, so
0: no yeah, the hornets, third in offense, yeah, thirtieth in defense,
1: and then the the hawks are really close they're tw- they're third and twenty fourth
0: um, well, basketball reference, which is non garbage time filter, has them second in offense and twenty seventh in defense, so they would qualify or twenty sixth in defense, mm-hmm. so they would qualify, yeah, sheesh. It's always strange when teams are like that. uh, I get a kick out of it, but I'm a weird person.
1: Absolutely. Uh, Normally I would ask what you're going to watch over the next few weeks, but I think it's the healthy teams is is probably a good way to put it. So instead, I will thank you so much for taking the time.
0: Thank you for having me, man. Always a good time.
1: Thanks again to Jared Dubin for taking the time to come on. Love having these conversations with him. You can check out his work wherever it exists, but 538 is a very frequent home for it. It's also a great reason to follow him at J A Dubin5, J A D U B I N. I was going to spell it out originally, and then the number five, because you can find out all the different places. He has an all3 link as well. And Jared does really good work on the NFL at CBS. So you can check that out as well. If you want to support this show, there are a lot of different ways you can do it. You can subscribe, download every episode in the podcast, of your Choosing, Spotify, Apple, wherever it is, really appreciated. And then you can also help other people find the show. That's leaving a rating, leaving a review in the podcast, you your Choosing, but also spreading the word, word of mouth, social media, wherever, say, hey, this episode or anything else really does help. You can also check out my other work. Nate and I are still going strong with Dunked On and Dunked On Prime. We actually just recorded the top 10 prospects, which is available to Dunked On Prime subscribers now I believe it will eventually be released as a free pod, but that's going to be later on in everything so everyone can enjoy it and process it and all that fun stuff. Also, we're doing the NBA cast, which is every Monday. We'll be doing Celtics Wolves this coming week. Barring a scheduling change, but I, I I think we'll we'll do that, which should be pretty fun. And then written work at the Athletic, and yeah, it's a it's a time of year to reflect on everything. I mean, Thanksgiving can be that for some people. I think the holidays are for others. And I want to take a second to thank all of you for listening and for supporting the show that makes a world of difference with Real GM Radio and and anything you really care about. I mean, that, that as much as our world feels saturated with various different creative endeavors. Which I, I personally love. I think that's a great thing about the internet and social media is that it has leveled parts of the playing field. And that's made my life possible for sure. But making sure that you also share the things you love, and so hopefully other people can find it. I try to do that. I haven't been as good with that though. The um, the, the emails through Dunked On and Dunked On Prime can do do help with that for basketball specific stuff. By the way, Spider Man No Way Home, excellent. If you haven't if you haven't seen it, if you're into that sort of thing, I really enjoyed it. But also thank you to everybody who helps make this show possible. My guests, obviously, but great people at Podcast One, Real GM, and. Really do appreciate everyone's involvement in making this possible because i love doing it i truly do if you have any feedback on the show good bad or indifferent danny larue nba at gmail.com is the way to get it to me if you take the time to write it i will take the time to read it that is a promise replying i try and uh, i have a couple that I actually want to do in the next few hours so check that out but reading it you know getting that input is something that really matters and i, I firmly believe that it makes the show better so thank you so much for listening take care make it a great day and have a happy holidays John Henny from Henny Jewelers. My family has helped thousands of Pittsburghers celebrate life's special moments since 1887. We are so excited to have our doors open once again. You can be sure we've gone above and beyond to keep our team and our customers as safe as possible. From in store and virtual appointments to curbside pickup and drop off, the Henny team will adapt to your comfort level. Plus, you can shop 24 7 at hennyjewelers.com. We can't wait to celebrate more Henny moments with you. Henny Jewelers, your jewelers for life.
0: Thunderstruck.